Amen. We believe in the name of Jesus. That's why we're gathered here today, and we're here today in the Gospel of John, wanting to learn afresh from Jesus' life and ministry. So uh, today we come to our series in John, and we've come to a time when Jesus got angry, when he drove out the temple, uh, the marketplace there in the temple. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or look up on the screens. I'm going to be in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, going to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word for us this morning. You may sit down and let's, let's pray to the Lord as we seek to understand his word. Father, just like the song we, we just sang said, we, we believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. We believe in you, Jesus. We want to have our eyes opened. And so, Lord, we ask, open our eyes by the power of your spirit. Help us to understand you afresh today. We ask that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, when you think of Jesus, what picture comes to your mind? What picture comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? For some of us, it may be growing up in Sunday school, this picture of Jesus with children. He's smiling. Children are coming to him on his lap, and he's, he's welcoming the children in. For others of us, it may be his power that we picture. We picture his arms raised as he calms the storm in the boat, or as he raises the dead or heals the sick. For others of us, it may be uh, his love that comes to our mind, namely his love that was shown to us on the cross. And we, we picture the cross when we picture Jesus. And those are all good and right pictures of Jesus. Those are healthy ways to think about our Lord and Savior. But I would venture to say that very few of us, when I asked that question, thought of Jesus getting mad. 
in driving out all the sellers in the temple area. Having this whip of cords and driving out cattle and all of that. But that is precisely the picture that we're given today in John chapter two. And I believe that God through it wants us to have our understanding of Jesus expanded because we wanna worship Jesus as he is, not as we imagine him to be, not as we picture him to be just in our own mind's eye, but as scripture reveals him. And so as we look at this text, we are gonna have an expanded view of who Christ is. But before we get into the story itself, it's helpful for us to remember the context in which John is writing. If you remember big picture, John is writing, he says at the end in verse uh, chapter 20, he says, I'm writing that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so that's the big picture of what John is doing. And he has access to all types of stories about what Jesus did and said. And he says that in the presence of his disciples there at the end of John, Jesus did so many things that if they were all written down, he supposes that the whole world could not even contain the books that would be written. Of all those things Jesus did, he did so much that we don't even know about. It's kind of like uh, if someone was to ask you, if you're a parent, what is your child like? Show me a picture of your child or a video of your child. Many of us have like thousands of pictures and, and videos and be like, well, I gotta really boil this down to figure out who my child is to, to share with this person. Same thing with John. He's trying to boil it down. What does it mean to take to believe in Jesus? How, how can I show people who Jesus is? And so he's taken all these stories and he's culled, it, culled them down and he's picked these stories purposefully that we might believe and have life in his name. So when we read the Gospel of John, we want to remember that these stories are not just John's random chronicling of Jesus' life. This isn't just, well, it just happened, this happened, this happened. This is John taking countless stories and saying, this I want you to see, this I want you to see, this I want you to see. And really it's not John, it's the Holy Spirit through John who wants us to see these things. So, so far in his gospel, John has been showing us, we started this in, back in December, he's been showing us that Jesus is God. He's the eternal word of God. He's the light of the world. He is the lamb of God. He is the king of Israel. He is the Messiah. He, that's kind of front loaded up front. That's what we learn about Jesus. And now he's showing us how that is the case through Jesus' life and ministry. So last week, if you remember, Jesus turned the water into wine. And one of the big things that John was doing there was showing how Jesus transforms these old ways of worship. So these old ways of worship, the rituals, hand-washing rituals, these stone jars, Jesus turns the water into wine. He's come to bring abundance. He's come to abolish those old ways of religion with himself, with the, he, he is he's the abundant one. He is the one who brings this new wine. And he's doing the same thing again today in our story today. We're gonna to be confronted with Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament forms of worship. They were all instituted by God, pointing us to the Messiah, pointing us to the Savior. And now the Savior is here. And so we'll see that we don't need to go to a particular place 
to meet with God. And so the main point of today's message is this. It's, it's fairly simple. To worship God, you must go to Jesus. To worship God, you must go to Jesus. And this passage could be broken down into three sections. In each section, we can get a reason why we must go to Jesus to worship God. The first reason is in verses 13 and 17, because Jesus reveals God's heart. Jesus reveals God's heart. The second reason is verses 18 to 22. It's because Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. And the third reason that we must go to Jesus to worship God is because Jesus knows what's in our hearts. That's in verses 23 to 25. So let's, as we jump into the story, let's first explore how Jesus reveals God's heart. And right off the bat, in verse 13, John wants us to know that the Passover is going on. How do I know that? Well, he, he says it here in verse 13, but he says it again in verse 23. He's, whenever we see this kind of repetition in Scripture, the author is trying to highlight something. So the Passover of the Jews was at hand. That's important because every year, males and, and females, in some cases, would, would travel from all around the Israel or the surrounding world to come and descend upon Jerusalem. It was commanded in Deuteronomy 16, don't, don't eat of the Passover sacrifice in your own towns. You got to go where the place where God has chosen to dwell, which in this case was the temple in Jerusalem. So all these people, every year, Jesus was probably doing this ever since he was a boy. Luke tells us that he was doing it uh, for his whole life. They come and they descend upon Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem would expand in size many times during the Passover season and it was bustling with activity. There was much going on and uh, it began, the Passover sacrifice began this feast of the unleavened bread which lasted for seven days. That's what this Passover feast is. And so after making this long trek, you can imagine all these people coming from around Israel and even surrounding countries, the Jews from surrounding countries, they needed to buy sacrifices to offer in the temple. And to accommodate this situation, at some point, the Jewish leaders had allowed these sellers of cattle and pigeons and, and these uh, sheep, things that they needed for the sacrifice, they had allowed them into the temple premises, into the temple complex, which was massive. Not just the building itself, but there was this surrounding courtyard, which was many football fields large. It was a large area, and they had allowed these cellars in there. The people also, when they came from these surrounding areas, had to pay the temple tax, but they had to pay the temple tax in the local currency. And so it was uh, obvious why the currency the money changers were there, it was, it was to provide a service. It was to provide help to worship. And so as we get into the story, it kind of makes sense why these people were there. You know, people had come from all these surrounding towns and, and traveled a long distance. They needed money to pay for the tax. They needed sacrifices. So on one level, it made sense what was going on. But that is the context. Let's Listen again to what Jesus does in this context. Verse 13, here's what it says. 
the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So the buying and selling in the temple premises, in this temple complex, it may have been convenient, but Jesus was not okay with it. The problem was that this was not the purpose of the temple. It was never intended to be a marketplace. There wasn't supposed to be cow dung or pigeon droppings in the temple premises. Instead, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. This was the place where the living God came to dwell with his people. This was a place to meet with the living God, not to buy and sell. And as Jared preached about a couple weeks ago in in the uh, Palm Sunday service, this buying and selling happened in the court of the Gentiles, which means it was preventing the Gentiles from worshiping God. Instead, there was a big marketplace. It was kind of like um, if you've ever been in the Middle East or in other countries, you can imagine the scene with all these animals and, and the hustle and the bustle. And so Jesus, seeing all this, he took action. I just want us to imagine what that was like. Jesus walks in to the temple complex and he looks around and and he looks and there's this huge area where these people are buying and selling. There's tons of cattle. There's sheep running back and forth. There's pigeons in cages. There's people exchanging money. And what does he do? The first thing he does is he looks for uh, some cords and he wraps them up. He makes a whip out of it. And he goes over to these people. He says, hey, what are you guys doing? How's it going? No, he, he goes up to them and he starts overturning their tables. He starts dumping out all the money on the ground. He starts whipping the animals so that they start moving and get out of the temple. And he forces everybody out of the temple. Jesus wasn't asking for permission. He was telling them what to do. He's clearing out the marketplace. But this isn't merely a story about Jesus getting angry about cattle in the temple. No, he's he's doing so much, uh, something more profound here. Now, if you remember our Malachi series, if you remember back in chapter three of Malachi, Malachi says that he was going to send his messenger ahead, which was John the Baptist. And then it says this in Malachi chapter one, or chapter three, verse one. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like Fuller's soap. Well, here Jesus is fulfilling Malachi's prophecy. He is the Lord. He is this messenger of the covenant that was prophesied. And here we have a picture of him coming into his temple. 
Malachi 3 goes on to say, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold. So what Jesus is doing, he's bringing refinement and judgment to the sons of Levi, those religious leaders that had allowed this marketplace to happen in what was supposed to be a house of prayer and had had allowed it to be a marketplace. Jesus is revealing to us God's heart, what he values, what he values in worship. But it gets even better. This is what John is doing. When Jesus says, do not make my father's house a house of trade, not only is he calling God his own father, he's making himself equal with God. But many scholars believe, and I I believe this with them, that he's alluding to Zechariah 14. It's okay if you haven't memorized Zechariah 14, but the whole chapter of Zechariah 14, it's the last chapter in Zechariah, it's talking about this great day of the Lord. In the very end of the book of Zechariah, in chapter 14, verse 21, the last sentence says this, and there shall be no longer a trader, one who trades, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So what is Jesus doing? He is pointing to the fact that with his arrival, with his clearing out of the temple, he is ushering in a new day. He is the Messiah, that God's refining judgment is coming with him, just as it was promised in Zechariah 14, just as was promised in Malachi 3. He is the one who has authority to do these things because he's the Messiah, and he himself is God. Well, it was only later on, likely after his resurrection, that his disciples remembered this event. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, they saw that Jesus' actions fulfilled Psalm 69.9, which says this, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, through this event, Jesus is fulfilling all sorts of prophecy. He is fulfilling the old uh, ways of worship that were pointing towards the Messiah. The next line of Psalm 69 says this, and the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's quoted by Paul in Romans. Well, what Jesus was doing in defending the Father's house and defending the temple with great passion was he was showing that those who were against him, these religious leaders, were really against God the Father. They were reproaching God the Father, and, and therefore they were reproaching Jesus. Well, there's a slogan that you may be familiar with. It says, keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing of the temple, the worship of God, prayer in his name, it had been set aside. The main thing had become religious activity. The main thing had become a form of worship, functions of religion. Religious practices had become the main thing. And they had missed the point of the temple. So as we close this section of the narrative, what are some truths about Jesus that we can apply from this section of the text into our own lives. Well, let me just suggest three. First, truth. Jesus cares deeply about what and how you worship. He cares deeply about what and how you worship. 
That's why here at Hope Fellowship, when we worship corporately or when we set up any ministry, everything we do is centered around the word of God and prayer. When we talk in our Discovering Hope classes, we always talk about one of our values being the centrality of Christ, the centrality of Jesus Christ. Jesus cares how we order our worship corporately. He also cares about how you order your worship individually. He wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth, abiding in his word and in prayer. And friends, there's just so many things that can distract us in worship nowadays. There's so many great resources even that we can go to. There's books, there's podcasts, there's even some videos that are really good resources. But those things can never substitute coming to Jesus directly, coming to him in prayer, coming to him in his word. Let those things not crowd out our hearts, even good, well-intentioned resources that are intended to point us to him. Well, truth number two, Jesus, from this text, Jesus will purify us. He will purify us. Yeah, Jesus takes us as we are, but he never leaves us as we are. He transforms us over time and he fashions us into his likeness. And this process can be very difficult at times. Just as when he was driving out the animals in the cellars of the temple, that was not a, uh, a kind, gentle thing to do. That was forceful. He was forcing the animals out of the temple. And it can be painful can it not, when God is driving out things in our own lives that have cluttered our hearts, when he brings trials into our lives, when he convicts us of sin. But Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we are. He, he will purify us as we come to him. A third truth from this section of scripture is that Jesus has authority over us. And perhaps today you just need to be reminded that Jesus, if you know and love Jesus, he owns you. You are his. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. So I wonder, just ask this question this week, today, later. Am I living as a steward of what God has given? Living for his purposes, for his glory and my work and my family? Or am I living as an owner? as if I'm in charge, as if I get to call the shots, that everything's dependent upon me. The point of this section here is that Jesus is not indifferent to what or how we worship. He is passionate, he is zealous about us worshiping rightly in spirit and in truth according to his word. So this first section shows us that Jesus reveals God's heart. Well, now we come to the next reason we need to go to Jesus to worship God from this text, and it's because Jesus is the true temple. In our culture today, you'll often hear something like this. Well, yeah, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. I believe he did a lot of good things. He even changed the world in some ways, but he never claimed to be God. He never claimed to, uh, that people needed to worship him. Well, people who say such things have clearly not read the Bible or they have not understood the Bible rightly because nothing could be further from the truth. As we continue in the story, we'll see that Jesus in this section points us to himself as the center of worship. 
So if you have your Bible, just look at verse 18. It might be up on the screen as well. It says this, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You see, the Jews described here weren't just everyday Jews. These were the religious leaders of the time. They weren't honest seekers. These were people that were furious at what Jesus had just done. He just ruined their kind of marketplace. There was chaos in the temple, and they're seeking an answer for it. What kind of authority do you have to do this? It's interesting they didn't arrest him. They didn't call the, the, the soldiers that were just outside the temple gates. Maybe some of them knew that what they were doing probably wasn't right, but they were saying, well, well, what kind of authority do you have? Show us a sign for this. And he gives them a veiled response because Jesus knows what they're doing. He says, well, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Verse 20 shows that they obviously had missed the point. They didn't have ears to hear. So verse 20 says, that is taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Jesus knows that the Jews would think that he meant the literal temple. They're standing in the temple for crying out loud. But as he often does with people who are, aren't honestly seeking him, Jesus doesn't correct their misunderstanding. He doesn't correct the fact that they're thinking on the wrong level. Thankfully, as readers, we're given the interpretation of Jesus's words. So he says in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. So what is happening here? The Jews are trying to trap Jesus. They're wondering why he thinks he can do this. They're, they're worried about the appearances, what's going on. They're, they're worried about losing profits, perhaps. They're worried about the chaos. But ironically, Jesus does give them what they're looking for. They want a sign. And Jesus gives them and foreshadows the greatest sign he could ever give. Because the greatest sign that they could have received was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The fact that he would rise from the dead three days after he was destroyed was proof that he had authority to cleanse the temple. They just didn't realize what he was talking about. You see, the temple was known to be the dwelling place of God on earth. It was, how, it was set up to help people worship God, but it had been corrupted. And so when people came from all around the known world to worship at this temple, they found something that was not intended to be as, a, as it was set up. And yet, at its best, the temple was still a shadow of eternal realities. The, the tabernacle and then the temple was intended to point of what was truly happening in heaven, the worship of God. That's why the specifications were so exact. And by cleansing the temple and making these statements, Jesus is saying that I am the true temple. The temple that, you know, this temple points to heaven. I came down from heaven to earth. I am the dwelling place of God. That's, God dwells within me. That's what he was saying. 
So everything the Jews were striving for, the reason they had come from all over Israel, the reason they were at the temple offering sacrifices at the Passover feast, all of these were signs intended to point to the Messiah, to point to the one that was right in their midst, and they missed it. They missed it all. They were too busy worrying about the form of worship, how they could get prepared to worship rightly. When Sarah and I lived in Switzerland, there were, uh, this was a number of years ago, and there were many evidences of the spiritual heritage in Geneva, where we lived. Just steps across from where we lived was the Reformation Wall, and it was, it was a big statue of John Calvin and John Knox and other reformers. Just up the hill was Calvin's church where he helped usher in a whole new era of Christianity, of Protestant Christianity, reforming the church. There were days that people had off school and work. They had Ascension Day off of work. Who has Ascension Day off work? They had Pentecost off of work. And you would ask some people, some Swiss people, like, why do you have this day off work? What's Pentecost? They're like, I don't know, some religious thing. I couldn't tell you. They had all these forms of religion that pointed to a greater reality, pointed to the heritage that they had, but they missed the point. And that, that's what was happening here in our passage. The Jews had all the forms of worship. They had the temple, they had the sacrifices, they had the Passover, but Jesus was and is the substance. They were worried about religion and they missed God walking in their midst. They were relying on promises when the fulfillment of all those promises was right in front of them. After Jesus rose from the grave, the text says that the disciples remembered his saying about the temple rising three days later. It's the Holy Spirit that brought to their minds and and it says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so as we end this section of the text, I want you to consider this question. Are you more like the Jews who are seeking a sign from Jesus? Seeking Jesus to do something for you so that you can believe in him? Or are you like his disciples, believing the scripture and the words of Jesus that is contained there? Because friends, we have everything we need for life and for godliness right here. We don't need extra signs to believe in Jesus. The greatest sign imaginable has been performed, celebrated on Easter. Jesus has died, he has risen from the grave. We don't need to see with our eyes, we can see through his ever, never changing, holy inspired word. It's true, it's trustworthy, it's an anchor for us. So we're a few weeks past Easter, but I wonder, does the resurrection of Jesus cause you to believe the scripture, which all points to him? Does it cause you to believe in him? Is Jesus' greatest sign enough for you? Are you waiting for something else? Well, if God just would change my job situation, I I would trust him more. If he would just reconcile this relationship, if I would just be healed, then, then I would, or fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. 
Friends, we have enough to trust in this one and to bank our life upon him. Well, that leads us to the final reason we should come to Jesus to worship God, and it's because Jesus knows what's in our hearts. See that in verses 23 to 25. And here we learn that you can't fool Jesus about what you believe. At first glance, verse 23 seems really encouraging. Let's just look at it again together. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast in the same time, many believed in his name when he saw the signs that he was doing. When you first read this, you're like, well, isn't that the point of John's gospel? He's written down signs that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ by believing have life in his name. Isn't, isn't that a good thing? Well, what's wrong? Well, context helps us. We just got to keep reading and we find out what's wrong. Verse 24 says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what's happening here? Well, since Jesus knows the hearts of all people, he knew that these people's belief in him was not substantive. This was not deeply rooted. Yeah, they had seen him do some miracles. We don't know which ones. John doesn't say which miracles they had seen. But because of those miracles, they believed in Jesus on some level. But their hearts weren't fully with Jesus. Jesus knew what was in them. He knew that it was not authentic belief. They may have believed in Jesus because of his miracles, but not because they actually trusted him. Not that they had actually given their lives to him. And so as we consider these verses, it should be a challenge to us, and it should encourage us at the same time. Both because Jesus knows our hearts. It should challenge us because perhaps at some point we have professed a faith in Jesus. But, you know, our life over time, we've noticed, hasn't changed a bit. And perhaps right now you're even questioning, is Jesus who he said he is? If that's you, this should be a challenge. We, we can have great confidence that the Lord will never let go any that he's rescued. But if there is spurious belief or, or a faith that is not truly in Jesus, just about what he's done or how he's going to change our lives or we've believed in him for some reason other than who he is and trusting in him, we should be challenged by these verses. And if you, if you find yourself there, you should also be encouraged because the Lord knows you. You should be challenged because he knows you. You should be encouraged because he knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your sinful tendencies. He sees everything about you. And if right now you're not fully trusting in him, his arms are still open wide to you. His arms are open wide to every single one in this room because He sees what's in man's heart and he does something about it. He went and died on the cross for you and was raised from the dead for you. So for some, you should feel challenged because Jesus knows what's in your heart. You may say, yeah, I'm a Christian, 
whatever that means, but you know in your heart you're not trusting in Christ. You know in your heart you are going your own way. You have not given yourself to him. You should feel challenged. But you should also feel encouraged because Jesus knows what's in your heart. He's inviting you to give your whole self to him, to surrender your life to him. If you haven't done that today, I would invite you to do that to trust in the Lord Jesus today, or if you've been wandering from him, or if you are doubting your faith, come back to Jesus. Remember that Jesus is not after our religious performance. He's not after external signs of righteousness. He demands wholehearted trust. He wants our hearts. He wants surrender. He fights for our worship, and he's zealously passionate about you coming to him to find life. Well, in this passage, God is calling us to reorder or recalibrate our worship, to recalibrate it around Jesus Christ because we need to go to Jesus in order to worship God. But we can go to Jesus only because he has first come to us. The story of the Bible shows us that God's intention has always been to dwell with his people. We see that in Genesis 1, 2 and following. In the garden, God dwelt with Adam and Eve, but sin disrupted that relationship. We see that through the tabernacle and then the temple. God wanted to dwell and did dwell with his people, but there was a lot of barriers to people coming to him. And then Jesus came from heaven to earth so that we might dwell with God forever, that we might worship him, the true temple, and that when we believe in him, God's word says we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Us collectively as Hope Fellowship, but individually, God dwells within you. What a great joy that is. So if you don't know that joy, today is a day to trust in him, to surrender your life to him. And if you do know that, We know that joy of dwelling with Jesus, but we also know the struggle. We know the struggle with sin, and so we can look forward to that day, Revelation 21 talks about, when once again, God will dwell with man. And there's no temple in that city, because it says in Revelation 21 that the temple is the Lord, and it is the Lamb. He, they are the temple. And so we look forward to that day when we can worship Jesus as he is designed to be worshiped. So as we go, the question is this, will you go to Jesus to worship God? Will you go to him again? Go to him afresh again. Go to him for the first time. But Jesus is the true temple. He wants us to go to him so that we can worship God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are holy, you are righteous. Lord, we know there was no way until you made a way that we could dwell with you because you first came to dwell with us. So Lord, we ask, I ask that today you would lift our eyes up, help us to see Jesus for who he is, Lord, help us to remember that you passionately care about our worship, what's in our hearts, what we're pursuing. Help us to pursue you, Lord. Help us to remember we need to come to you, Jesus, not 
go to all these religious things. We need to come to you through your word and through prayer. And Lord, I pray today you would raise some up from the dead, that you would speak life into those who are wandering and are lost, and they would be found by you uh, even today. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.